You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Beautiful day in this neighborhood. Beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood. A neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have all. I was never going to sing it for you. <laughs> but welcome. Hello, neighbor. Those two words, many of you will know, have been around for a long time. Back in 1968, there's an ordinary guy named Fred who uttered those words into a camera at a small regional TV studio called Eastern Educational Television Network. And little did he know that for the next 33 years from that point forward, those words would shape the lives of viewers in profound ways. See, when Fred started out, he was just a little frustrated with the world he lives in, which I'm sure none of us have ever felt. During his senior year at Rollins College, he was earning a bachelor's degree in music, and he initially wanted to enter seminary after graduating. He had this deep desire to help people, particularly in the intersection of emotional and spiritual well-being. And one day, when visiting his parents' house, he encountered a newfangled invention, TV, in 1951. It was black and white back then. And as he watched, he was stunned by two things. One, the remarkable potential of this invention. It was a tool that could be used to proclaim messages to millions of TVs at the click of a button. But the second thing he noticed was the ugliness of what he saw on TV. The programs and shows he watched, particularly the ones for kids, seemed mindless. It was as if this amazing tool was only being used to create hypnotized robotic watchers. Can you imagine? Mindless TV that turns you into a binge-watching zombie? What would happen in the world if we had that? So Fred decided to get in a TV. He figured someone had to use this medium to help people become better humans, not just duller humans. And so he entered the industry of local television. He had the hope of creating children's programming that was focused on specific themes to cultivate emotional and spiritual health. In an interview later on in his life, he reflected on his experience this way. He said, I went into television because I hated it so. And I thought, there's some way of using this fabulous instrument to nurture those who watch and listen. And so he started in the TV industry in 1951 at the bottom of the totem pole. And his ideas were regularly shot down by the network department heads. They thought that people were watching TV precisely because it was mindless. They thought people wanted to escape real life. But Fred stuck with it for 11 years. And eventually, he got his small network slot for a children's program. And then he worked in that children's program for six more long, arduous years. And the show grew, and parents and children alike eventually were flocking to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You all grow up on that show, many of you? Yeah. Eventually, it was picked up nationally, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood became a staple of TV for more than three decades. 
and it wasn't just a feel-good sentimental show. That's often how we picture it, and that's often kind of what we joke about from the show. But Fred built episodes around real, real themes. Divorce, disabilities, ending segregation, discipline, social interactions, and much, much more. So in a world where people were becoming increasingly divided and hostile and lonely, Fred's show was helping kids navigate that world. And eventually, he was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. Go Presby's. <laughs> Not really, but it's kind of fun. And his theological and spiritual themes regularly connect on that show with the content. This became his ministry. And his influence over the years can hardly be understated. Psychologists have produced study after study showing that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, in its emphasis on social and emotional learning, strengthened decision-making for kids, planning and motivation, positive social interactions, conflict management, academic performance, and in general, children's abilities to recognize, understand, express, and regulate their emotions. All from a TV show. Do you see what's happening here? An ordinary man living in an ordinary hometown of Pittsburgh with an ordinary music degree from an ordinary college looked around his community and his world and asked, how can I be a neighbor to these people? How can I use my time and energy to help people flourish? And he didn't start out with a ton of money. He didn't start out with some master plan or vision like we as Christians like to talk about, a catalytic movement for revival. That didn't exist. He started with a simple question. How can I love my neighbor? And friends, we live in a time that is in desperate need of good neighbors. That's certainly true on TV. According to a 2019 study, the lack of a Mr. Rogers replacement, Daniel Tiger aside, a lack of a Mr. Rogers replacement show for kids as they've grown has produced a generation of college students that are less empathetic and more narcissistic than all other previous American generations. Sorry, GCUers in the room. But it's not entirely your fault because our tech and our world has produced this in us. We are a selfie culture. Not only because we take more images of ourselves than at any other time in world history, but because for decades we've been taught that we need to pursue our own desires, our own pursuits, in order to feel any sort of happiness. We are consumeristic to the end of self, not sacrificial to the end of others. There's a great theologian named Walter Brueggemann who talks about this in his book, An Other Kingdom. He says, the culture flows from the assumption that the accumulation of commodities, getting more for myself, will make me safe and happy. And it's not working. Our selfie culture only leads us to deeper levels of loneliness and isolation and division. We are in the midst of a mental health crisis in the US. More than 50% of Americans in their 20s today say they feel persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. Antidepressant use has risen by more than 35% in the last six years alone. Vivek Murthy, who's the Surgeon General of the US, that's America's doctor, he says that the most pressing health concern in the US today is not cancer or diabetes or smoking or opioid use. It's loneliness. As sociologist Robert Putnam put it humorously, most Americans watch friends instead of making friends. And the result is that our world is alarmingly divided. We're farther apart from one another than we've been in decades. Uh, Luke actually talked about this a couple weeks ago, but I thought it was worth bringing back up. The Global Peace Index, this is a massive study, comprehensive, of more than 163 countries. What they do is they take about two dozen data points related to peace in a country. So they research things like the number of homicides per 100,000 people, 
or the amount of political turmoil or unrest, or the amount of violent crime. And then from that data, they produce a score that ranks all 163 countries from most peaceful to least peaceful. So survey question for you. Out of 163 countries, where do you think the US landed? Shout out some numbers. 40th, okay, Sergio's relatively confident. 131st. We are smack dab in the middle of countries that are actively involved in civil wars, segregation, rampant human trafficking, and much, much more. But here's the silver lining. 2024, 2024 is an election year, which means it's gonna solve our problems, right? November's gonna come along. That's how it works. Friends, our politics, our TV, our medications, our therapeutic selfie culture, our social media, they're all working together to push us further from our neighbors, further from our communities, further from healthy shared life together. And it's leading many of us, I've had many conversations with many in this room, to ask an important question. How do we show up in that sort of world? How can we be vehicles of life and healing in a world of death and decay? See, many of us in this room are here because we've experienced the abundant life that Jesus said he'd bring into the world through his kingdom. We've experienced the peace of God in prayer or the healing power of Christ's forgiveness or the spirit maturing us or the generous giving of ourselves away to the vulnerable or this radically loving community that supports and grieves and loves and prays together. And all of that has instilled in many of us this loving desire to share the same eternal joy that we've experienced here with our neighbors, with our friends, with our baristas, with our coworkers. But how? How do we invite people to experience the life that we have been transformed by, especially when our expressions of faith are so often met with awkwardness or hostility or just indifference in a post-Christian world? And as it turns out, those aren't new questions. Jesus himself was surrounded and met by hostility all over his ministry. His earliest followers faced regular marginalization and persecution. In the midst of all of that, the pages of scripture point to a practice that transcends time and culture and trend and paves the path for each and every one of us to embody Jesus' love and grace in our own time. It's the radical practice of neighboring. And so as a community, we want to kick off this new year, an election year, with a new teaching series all about this practice as it unfolds to us in different moments from Jesus' life. And yes, we're ripping off Fred Rogers and calling it, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Unabashed. Uh, sweaters will be hanging up. Luke mentioned that as well. So. Now, when we use the term neighboring, we want to be really clear throughout the series what we mean and what we don't mean. Because we don't mean what we as Americans typically picture when we think of neighbors. When we think of neighbors, we think that's the person, if I get home at the same time as them, I say hi as I'm going into my house, and then Christmas comes along and I complain about how bright their Christmas lights are, or whatever. Right? That, like that's how neighboring works for many of us. But according to Jesus in the scriptures, neighboring is a practice that expresses the welcome of God to all people through tangible acts of love ideally through giving food, shelter, and relationship. Neighboring is a practice that expresses the welcome of God to all people through tangible acts of love, ideally through giving food, shelter, and relationship. And so in this teaching series, in addition to our Sunday morning gatherings, we've got a resource that has a bunch of tips and tools designed to help you figure out how you can neighbor in your own place over the next few weeks. And between our Sunday morning teachings and that resource, we're going to see that neighboring is not only the best way to show our skeptical post-Christian world, what authentic Jesus following looks like, but it's also the way that we point towards a kingdom that welcomes all of God's beloved children. 
and that surrounds them around the good news of his death and resurrection. So friends, to kick off this series, uh, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 10, a famous story that many of you have heard before. Luke 10, starting in verse 25, is where we're going to be reading. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, The words will be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A family reunites after the actions of a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan donates thousands of blankets to a local hospital. A good Samaritan pays for a month's worth of groceries for a family in need. Search Google, and you'll find thousands of headlines just like those. Because in our culture, whether we're religious or not, we love those two words. We love the story of a good Samaritan. And usually, when we use that phrase, we place an emphasis on the increased moral capacity and grandeur of the person doing those random acts of kindness. So you've got some guy named Jeff. Jeff is a great dude. He finds himself in a situation where he can help someone, and so he does. And then we elevate Jeff. We interview Jeff. We write news stories about Jeff. Jeff becomes the goat. And if everyone would just buck up and be better and look more like Jeff, then we'd really solve the problems of our world. We use Jesus' Good Samaritan story as an inspiring example that spurs us to fix our world by our own human willpower. And to be clear, that's not all bad. Anything that contributes to human flourishing is beautiful and good. But our familiarity with the story and the way that we've kind of co-opted it into our culture often robs us of seeing its deeper significance. See, the truth is, Jesus is not just giving us a nice moral fable that will make us feel good and help us to fix the world by our own moral willpower. In reality, Jesus is actually undermining everything his culture believed about their neighbors and what it meant to be a neighbor to them. The people who originally heard the story didn't hear it as a feel-good, inspiring tale. They heard a radical, offensive, boundary-breaking tale that challenged their preconceptions, challenged their judgments, challenged their assumptions. That's how we need to feel when we read this story. As it turns out, it can retain that same radical effect if we see it with new 
eyes. The story kicks off with a lawyer, but not the kind of lawyer we picture today. Less like Lerner and Rowe, more like a seminary professor. That's what you want to picture here. Somebody who studied the Jewish law. And right away, we learn that this lawyer stands up to test or trap Jesus, which is always a great idea. Always goes well for people in the Gospels when they test or trap Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right off the bat, that's a weird question because this man has studied the scriptures for years. He has them memorized. And teachers like him actually had summary statements of the law that were common in that day. He probably has an answer to this question already. So why is he asking it? To test, to trap Jesus. This is like a scripture police moment for him. He's testing Jesus on whether his theology is up to snuff here. And Jesus catches on to this ulterior motive because he knows who this guy is. And so Jesus does the classic rabbi thing of responding to a question with a question. He says, what's written in the law? What do you read there? In other words, what does the Bible say and what's your interpretation of it? And the lawyer, without missing a beat, answers with quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, which was a common summary of the law given at that time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so now it's obvious, the lawyer was never searching for an answer to the question, he always had it. And Jesus affirms his answer. He's like, yep, you got it, just do that, and you're good to go. Love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor, the person on your right and the person on your left, as yourself, and you will experience life to the full, the life that God has made you for. And the lawyer went away and did just that, and that's the end of our story, right? No, not quite. The conversation keeps going, even when the lawyer has an answer. Why? We actually see why. His motivation is made clear to us. He wants to justify himself. Anybody ever wanted to justify themselves before? Just me? Okay, cool. So he asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Now we're seeing the truth. He's looking for a loophole. He's asking Jesus to define the limits of his love. Define who I have to love so that this is actually achievable on my terms. Because you can't possibly mean I have to love everyone. I mean, my enemy? They voted for Trump or Biden. That person? You can't possibly mean that I have to love the morally corrupt person, right? See, this lawyer enters this conversation knowing that there are some people he has failed to love or people he doesn't want to love or people he doesn't think are deserving of love. And so he's looking for a loophole. And while it's easy to look down our nose at the lawyer here, if we're being honest with ourselves, we all look for loopholes in our own lives. The guy who throws parties till 2 a.m. next door? Come on. Let's be honest. The coworker who's just impossible to work with? That family member who manages to say at least one subtly racist thing every time you get together? The person whose political beliefs are just insane? The vaxxers, the anti-vaxxers, the drunk experiencing homelessness, the filthy rich, the immigrant? We're all like the lawyer. We love the idea of loving humanity. It's just those pesky humans that keep getting in the way. And so the lawyer's cards are now out on the table. He's testing Jesus, and he's looking for a loophole. And in classic Jesus fashion, when asked a straight-up question, what does he do? Tell a story. <laughs> a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Notice the first two words, a man. 
anonymous. No identity to validate or invalidate whether he deserves love or not. We don't know what he's done. We don't know his green card status. We don't know how much melanin is in his skin. We don't know who he voted for in the last election. We don't know if he's an outright scumbag. We only know that he's a man. Jesus is implicitly answering the lawyer's question with the first two words, our neighbor is anyone in need. No caveats. Jerusalem to Jericho, he says, is the path he's traveling. This is a journey of about 18 miles. It's a steep drop from about 2,500 feet above sea level to about 800 feet below sea level. Many scholars think this is what the road looks like. It's a narrow, desertous, arid place with lots of blind twists and turns, which means it's a great place to get jumped by robbers in the ancient world. It was really common in that day, so common that the road was nicknamed the Way of Blood. Many listeners of this story would have assumed that this guy's an idiot for traveling this road alone. You don't go the Way of Blood alone. He's asking for it. He really got himself into this position. And then we learn, after he's been jumped by these robbers, he's bleeding out on the roadside, two men pass by, a priest and a Levite. And both of them are religious professionals, like the lawyer Jesus is in conversation with. And both of their actions are described in the same way. You may have noticed kind of a, repeat, a repetition in the story. They walk down the road, they see him, and then they pass by on the other side. They both see him. That's something that Jesus emphasizes. This isn't a five-lane highway where it was really difficult to get across the road to help someone. Some scholars think, actually, that in order to pass by these men, they, this man on the road, they would have literally had to step over him because it's so narrow. Now, it's really easy for us, two millennia later, on the other side of the world, to look down our noses at these two men at this point in the story. But it's also important to remember where they're coming from. See, the priest and the Levite were likely coming down from their work in the temple in Jerusalem. And at this time in history, they would work in two-week-long rotations, and many of them lived in Jericho. So they'd travel this road after they're done with their shift, and they'd have their pay with them. But not pay, like Luke mentioned, digits in a bank account, direct deposit. Pay in the form of food, grain offerings, and animal offerings. That's what they got paid in. And if you read the Torah, the Jewish law, there are sorts of, all sorts of rules about food sanitation and cleanliness for the people. And according to those laws, if any of your food came into contact with someone or something unclean, like a man bleeding out on the roadside, then all your food would need to get thrown out. It was corrupted in some way. So imagine you're the priest or the Levite here. You just got off a two-week-long shift, and you are dead tired. You're on a long and dangerous road home through a bad neighborhood. You just want to get through as quickly as possible so you can get back and hug your wife, who's going to have a warm dinner for you, and hug your kids and send them off to bed. You come across yet another person in need after you've been working for two weeks with people in need. And this person's probably already too far gone anyway. I mean, imagine the compassion fatigue, right? And then, even if you stop there to help, you not only likely forfeit all of your food for yourself, but also for your family back home. And you put yourself at risk of being robbed because the robbers might still be around. To help this man, these two would need to be willing to put their own well-being at risk and the well-being of their families at risk for the sake of a neighbor they don't know. Suddenly, it's harder to look down our noses at them. I mean, we've all ignored our neighbor in need for far less than these two did. 
We've all played the mental justification game in our head in order to step over or around the people in need around us. Well, I mean, they made a poor choice and they're facing the consequences. I've already given so much this week and they're just going to take advantage of me anyway. And my effort doesn't really make a difference in all this. I've already got my own stuff I need to take care of. These two aren't just caricatures of hypocritical religion. In many ways, they're us. And then in verse 33, Jesus introduces a third man into the story, a Samaritan. And because we've so often used that title positively in our culture, we're actually at a disadvantage to understanding how radical this was. This is a major twist in the story. See, in Israel's history, Samaritans were utterly hated by the Jewish people. They were originally part of the nation of Israel, but after an enemy nation called Assyria came in, burst their borders, they, the Samaritans actually intermarried with them and adopted all sorts of corrupt worship practices and heretical theological beliefs and idolatries and the rest. And so centuries of violence between Jews and Samaritans had predated Jesus to this point. Jews saw Samaritans as half-breed heretics and Samaritans saw Jews as racist and cruel. And so what does Jesus do when he introduces the Samaritan in the story? He makes him the hero. The hero is the enemy. The outsider is the hero. And so the Samaritan comes upon the man and sees him. But rather than passing by, he sees him just like the other two, but rather than passing by, he has pity on him. The word in Greek there is a really fun one to say, splegnizomai. But the root of the word refers to the internal organs. What this is saying is quite literally, he's moved so thoroughly that he can feel it in the pit of his stomach. He's sick to his stomach at the suffering of his neighbor. And that compassion, that pity, moves him to do precisely what the priest and Levite fail to do. He puts his own well-being on the line for the sake of the other. And look at all of the lengths that Jesus mentions that the Samaritan goes to to ensure he's cared for. First, he comes near to the man, which is putting himself at risk because the robbers could still be anywhere around. And then it says he pours oil and wine on his wounds and bandages them. Some oil and wine in that day, really valuable commodities. Some scholars think that this guy was a merchant who was traveling and making his living off of selling his oil and wine. So he is literally giving away his livelihood to help his neighbor. And then he lifts him up onto his own animal and walks him to the nearest inn. That's the position of a servant or a slave. He takes a lower social position to elevate this other person. He gives two denarii to the innkeeper. Innkeepers in that day, famous for being swindlers. So already he's being reckless with his money. And two denarii was about two weeks worth of wages. Two weeks worth to care for the guy. And then he says, here's my credit card. Anything else you need to care for this guy, it's on me. Blank check. The Samaritan puts his own life on the line and places the needs of his neighbor before his. In his sermon on this topic, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. described it this way. And I think it's a brilliant way of understanding the dynamics in the story. He said, I imagine that the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And then finally, at the end of the story, Jesus poses a question back to the lawyer. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man? And notice the lawyer's response. The one who showed him mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That's how deeply rooted this hatred is. You can imagine him with gritted teeth saying, the one who showed him mercy. His sworn enemy, 
is exposed not only as the neighbor he needs to love, but also as the enemy who is capable of more love than him. Go and do likewise. Gone is the sweet moral example that makes us feel good. This is a radical, paradigm-shifting, utterly convicting story that speaks to each and every one of us, proclaiming not only who our neighbor is, but what it really means to love them well, what it really means to practice neighboring. And it's showing us three main things in this story. It's showing us first that neighboring is universal, not selective. For Jesus, the range of definition for neighbor is the same as the range of definition for human. All humans equal neighbors. And the power of that command is in its simplicity. There's no caveat, no qualifier, no fine print. It doesn't allow me to choose who I get to love, but instead opens me up to love those even that I don't really want to. Your neighbor stretches all the way to the Samaritan, to the person whose name you can't say, whose presence fills you with anxiety and anger, whose actions may not actually deserve love. I love how G.K. Chesterton puts it in his book, Orthodoxy. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they're the same people. And that truth is just as radically countercultural for us in the U.S. today. We are all taught selective neighboring. Love others, so long as they agree with you or affirm you. Love others so long as they don't say anything offensive. Love others so long as they're in your political or social tribe. We are in desperate need of universal neighboring, you guys. We are in desperate need of people who see every human, the nasty coworker, the political enemy, the man on the corner, as the object of God's love. We are in desperate need of people who see people. And many of us understand that idea. I don't think anybody in here is like, eh, I don't know about this love thing. But for many of us, it stays kind of ambiguous and abstract. Yeah, we love everybody. So that means I'm nice to people in public and I tip my waitress well. Like that, that's what love often looks like for us. It's abstract, ambiguous stuff. And keep tipping. That's not a bad thing to do. But it's important to see the second thing we learn about neighboring here. It's not just universal. It's also particular. Not just abstract. See, in the story of the Samaritan, the neighbor is the one he literally walks by on his morning commute. And the same is true for us. The neighbor is not just the ethereal, outside, ambiguous person. It's the person who lives right next door, to your right and to your left and across the street. It's the person you see every day. We often hear the command, love your neighbor, and we don't take it very literally. We don't take it literally as the person who lives right next door to us. Just a thought experiment for you. Picture with me, in your mind's eye, the people who live to your right, to your left, across the street. Bring that man or woman or family to mind. If you don't know who they are, feel lots of shame and guilt. No, don't actually feel lots of shame and guilt. But it's a good idea to know your neighbor. Imagine the faces of those people and now consider the question, what if when Jesus said to love your neighbor, he was talking about those exact people? Those particular people. And not just to know their names, what they do for work, what they study, but to know their passions, their hopes and dreams, their hardships, to seek their well-being through tangible acts of love, even at your own expense. According to Jesus, the primary way we experience the kingdom of God, the vehicle through which we know and proclaim abundant joy and peace and love, is through the radical love of God and the radical neighboring of our particular neighbors. Which means that a central place we participate in the kingdom is a place so ordinary, we often overlook it. 
our homes, our immediate neighborhoods, the places where we live. See, the Samaritan didn't need to travel far and wide to love his neighbor. He simply had to have eyes to see what was right in front of him on his normal commute and then use his resources well in that space. Friends, oftentimes the best tool for bringing kingdom healing and life into our world isn't a sermon, isn't a Bible study, isn't a worship service. It's our home. It's our condo. It's our apartment. It's our dorm room. It's our table. Those spaces are outposts of the kingdom of God, tangible expressions of love of neighbor that mends division and heals wounds and welcomes the outsider. In fact, the next story that immediately follows the Good Samaritan is an illustration of this sort of neighboring. In verse 38, we learn that Jesus and his disciples go on their way and enter a certain village, and they're welcomed into the home of a woman named Martha. She welcomes them in. And that story is worth studying for a variety of different reasons. It's a really rich story. But just for the sake of this morning, I want to point out the connection that Luke seems to be making, the author of these texts, between these two stories. In the Samaritan passage, Jesus tells a story about a traveler on a road who is in need and experiences a tangible act of love. And then in the immediate next story, Jesus becomes a traveler on a road who is in need and experiences a tangible act of love. What Luke seems to be connecting is this. Loving your neighbor as yourself means loving the person right in front of you. And that will often mean using your home, your table, your tangible, immediate assets as the vehicle for the kingdom. And the truth is, in our hyper-individualized, consumeristic culture, that's a radical claim. Because for most of us, our home is not a place we think of as a kingdom outpost that we open up sacrificially for our neighbors. For most of us, our home is a retreat from the world. It's the place where we close off from the world around us, where we hide We eat there, we drink there, we relax there, we binge Netflix there, we lay on a comfy couch and scroll through social media there. And none of those things are inherently bad, but they often create a pattern of closed-offness to our immediate neighbors. There's a famous proverb that expresses this well. A man's home is his castle. Have you seen a castle? Walls, moats, cannons, guns, they're designed to keep you out. And that's how we treat our homes. Barriers between us and the world, not an open space to welcome the outsider. Friends, what if we saw our homes differently? What if we saw them not as retreats or castles, but as kingdom outposts in the world? What if our tables weren't just blocks of wood, but physical spaces upon which we could extend God's tangible love to our neighbor, to the broken, to the outsider, to the hurting? And it doesn't just have to be the person bleeding out on the roadside. Definitely help that person. But there are lots of hurting people in lots of different ways that we don't see unless we're looking for it. Friends, people you interact with every day right now are deeply hurting, deeply lonely, deeply disconnected. Every day you're coming across someone dying on the roadside. As Henry David Thoreau put it, every man lives a life of quiet desperation. And the best thing you can do is give them a space where they know they are deeply loved. A space where they know they belong. A space where healing can happen. That's the oil, the wine, the bandage to the wounds of our world. And by the way, that's always how Christians have lived. When Christians have followed Jesus best, this has been their calling card. They've made particular neighboring, radical hospitality what they do. 
We learn about it in the book of Acts. The church ensured in Acts 2 that their generosity was so consistent that wherever they went, people ceased to be in need. And it says Christians found favor in the eyes of all the people. And then a few centuries later, during the famines of the fourth century in the Middle East, there's an early Christian pastor, theologian. His name was Basil. He established a place where nurses and physicians could treat sick patients, study diseases, and find cures. It was one of our first hospitals. Not long after him, John Chrysostom, who was an early theologian, set up and encouraged his church to establish Christ rooms in their homes. Empty rooms dedicated to providing space for any who might need them. This is his quote from his sermon to his church back in the 400s. Therefore, set aside a room in your house to which Christ may come. Say, this is Christ's room. This is set apart for him. Even if it is very simple, he will not disdain it. Christ goes about naked and a stranger. He needs shelter. Do not hesitate to give it to him. Do not be lacking in compassion. Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest Christian thinkers and believers in the 20th century in France, he started communities called Labri communities that were designed to welcome spiritual wanderers with questions and challenges and where they could experience real communal love in the sense that Jesus came to bring it. Over and over again, Christians have done their best work through ordinary, simple neighboring, looking around the world and saying, what can I do to love my neighbors well? This story is a call to Christians in all times and all places to do the same. I like how John Tyson puts it in his book, Sacred Roots. He says, what would the church's love look like if it showed up dozens of times a week in small but profound ways? Cooked meals, prayers prayed, songs sung, Scripture studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practiced, resources given. What if our homes stopped being the places we hid from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing? That's what the church is called to be. That's what the kingdom is, friends. It's the place where, as the psalmist in Psalm 68 puts it, God sets the solitary in families. So radical neighboring, it's universal, not selective. It's particular, not abstract. But finally, it's dedicated to dying. See, the thing that enables the Samaritan to do what he does isn't some greater moral willpower or code. He's not actually at a greater uh, propensity or have a greater propensity for morality than the priest or the Levite. Priests of the Levite are great people. They do great religious work all the time. The only thing that differentiates the Samaritan here is his willingness to identify with the outcast. His willingness to identify with the downtrodden and the lonely and the dying and to give his life for that person. This Samaritan is an outcast dealing with another outcast. A loser in his culture ministering to another loser. That's what the priest and Levite are missing. They're stuck in their own safe religious self-justifications. And so they can't see themselves in the one dying because they think they're a little bit better. They're not dying. He brought this upon himself. The Samaritan has no such problem because he already knows he's a loser and an outcast. He's already experienced that. And so he can become a true neighbor because he sees himself in the one who is dying. Contrary to doing the right thing out of great moral effort, he recognizes his deadness, and that deadness leads him to put his life on the line. He's different than the priest and Levite because he's not more morally upstanding, but because he's willing to embrace death of himself for the sake of another. He is dedicated to dying. And that gets hammered home by all the stuff he gives up. 
He goes to irrational and reckless lengths with the oil and the wine, with the elevation of his neighbor on the donkey, with the innkeeper and the money. Exorbitant, over-the-top, absurd. He's giving himself away. Now, when I see that, it starts to look like someone else I've heard about. Who else humbled himself, taking the position of a servant to love those who were dying? Who was himself the social and religious outcast in a no-name, as a no-name day laborer from Nazareth born to a woman out of wedlock? Who was moved by compassion to the needy in his midst? Who was willing to die for those who were dying so that he might carry them to true life? It's Jesus, friends. We have all been mired into a sickness unto death, our sin and brokenness leaving us on the roadside with no help from moralistic religion like the priest and the Levite. And we've been saved by a lowly social outcast who made himself like us, dying himself, scooping us up and bringing us towards life and leaving death on the roadside where it belongs. And when we recognize that reality about our condition, when we allow that reality to sink into our souls, into our bones, suddenly we become people who can see ourselves in our dying neighbors and move towards them. Our radical neighboring is not born out of some elevated moral capacity. It's born out of the recognition that we too have been outcasts saved by an outcast. We too are dying people saved by a dying Lord. And so we too, by the power of the Spirit of Christ in and through us, become people who dedicate to dying for the sake of our neighbors, who give our lives away. Because we know our lives are already a gift anyway. So as we close our time, I'd like to read these words of uh, scholar and author Rosaria Butterfield to you. She uses a phrase called radically ordinary hospitality that we're describing as neighboring. Here's what she says. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. So this year, might we become a community of radical neighboring, a community of universal and particular love who's determined to die for others. Friends, let's go and do likewise. Let's pray.